Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we pray that as we open your word today, we would see wonderful things. And Lord, that your spirit would work in our hearts such that we would treasure Christ increasingly and we would find your grace. In Jesus' name. Amen. Uh-huh. You are bulldog clip for a reason. Okay, so, um, excuse me, I just need to wear a hat. Wouldn't be wise to do otherwise. Um, I was going to bring my crow's hat, but I thought then instead of apologising for my hat, I'd also need to apologise for the crows for last year in the appalling season. So I got this one instead. So as a church, um, Pastor Graham began last week a series in the Book of Ruth. And uh, we're going to be walking through that um, over four weeks. And we're up to Ruth chapter 2 today. And... As was mentioned last week, Ruth is set during a very interesting time, time of the judges, a time when every man did what was right in his own eyes, a time when there was no king, a time when Israel was uh, with reckless abandon, um, giving up the ways of God and pursuing the ways of pagan nations, including their idol worshipping, which was pretty tragic. But what we, we... What's unexpected about the book of Ruth is rather than being sort of a lament and a wailing about how terrible the times are, we actually find in it um, some incredible foreshadowings of the gospel. And we can see it's there to give the people of Israel hope that their God had not abandoned them for a second. As Graham mentioned last week, in our faithlessness, God remains faithful. And that's something beautiful that's carried over in this glorious book. So times have been incredibly tough for Naomi's family. Of course, the the famine had come and she'd gone over into the pagan nation of Moab. Uh, Her husband, Elimelech, died. Uh, Her sons had married local Moabite women, which was forbidden by the law of God. And then a decade later, those fellas died and she was left with two Moabite daughters-in-law and Naomi had lost her hope. Now, 2020 was an extremely difficult year for many of us, and for some of you, it was a year that really rocked your world. I know for some of you, you, you lost the Lego Masters Grand Final. It must have been a shattering start to the year, and who knew what was to come? But in all seriousness, some of you have had um, some devastating things happen over the last year. Some of you have had incredible health challenges that you thought only happened to other people. Some of you have had to farewell loved ones. Some of you have lost a job or perhaps never got that job you were hoping for. Some of you have had financial losses. Some of you have um, had a spouse betray you and walk away or friends turn their back on you or a child do something that's just broken your heart. And your hope in God was deeply tested. So what's been your response to the times of severe testing? If our faith means anything at all, it has to mean something in our darkest of times. Naomi's response is interesting. The sovereign, good and wise hand of God had fallen hard upon Naomi And she could have just supposed that she was a victim of circumstance or bad luck or random chance. 
But instead, we hear us saying things like, the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. The Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full and the Lord has brought me back empty. The Almighty has brought calamity upon me. Now, in truth, Ruth was probably quite depressed and she was pointing the finger at God, blaming him for her circumstances. But at very least, she understood one thing and that God is sovereign over her circumstances. She understood that these tragedies in her life hadn't happened in a dark corner, contrary to the will of God. These tragedies that happened in her life were the very will of God for her. And it perhaps reminds us of the words of Job when he was suffering unthinkable calamity after calamity. His own wife encouraged him to curse God and die. But in Job 1 we read this. Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshipped. And that is such an unexpected word. We might have expected it to say Job fell on the ground and gave up all hope, died, cursed God. But he worshipped. And I guess for someone who has walked with God so closely, someone who knew God, it was the only rational response. You know, it's like the words of Peter, Lord, to whom should we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. And Job said, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked shall I return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And it reminds me of an old hymn uh, from a guy called William Cooper, spelled Cowper, pronounced Cooper, an old English guy who knew a lot about hard times and trials. And back in 1774, around about the time that the British got interested in Australia, he wrote this hymn. It's the story of Naomi, the story of Job, and it's the story of you and me. And it goes something like this. God moves in a mysterious way, his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Deep in unfathomable mines of never-failing skill, he treasures up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds ye so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, such a good, important theological term, a frowning providence, behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his work in vain. God is his own interpreter, and he will make it plain. There's so much wisdom in an old hymn like that that reminds us that God is absolutely sovereign in the good in the bad and in the downright ugly. Yes, life is tragic. We live 
this side of the fall. But praise God, we also live this side of the cross. And in the cross, God proved his goodness, his sovereignty, and his mercy. Hence, he proved he could be trusted. In all of your bitter experiences, God is working for your good and for his glory. And that's a truth that we need to fall on in the most desperate of times. Well, if you were here last week, you would have heard Pastor Graham finish Ruth chapter 1 with these words. So Naomi returned and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. So they returned to Bethlehem and the barley is ripe for harvest. So things are changing for Naomi. And if you've got your Bibles there in Ruth 2, uh, verse 1, we find even more hope. Now, Naomi had a relative of her husband, a wordy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. So these couple of verses here are just side notes that the author is providing to give us an inside look as the reader uh, to see what God's doing behind the scenes. And if there's one thing we can learn from the book of Ruth, that is that God is always doing something behind the scenes. He's doing, always doing a million things behind the scenes that we know nothing about just because he's God. Every molecule in the universe is controlled by the sovereignty of God. As Dutch theologian Abraham Kuyper wrote, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. God is the master script writer who's working all things towards his glorious purposes. He did that in Naomi's life and he's doing it in yours right now, whether you can see it or not. And so there's a new hope for Naomi and his name is not Luke Skywalker, it is in fact Boaz. And that was my tip of the hat to Pastor Vincent who has shown me that I always need to have at least one movie reference in a message. Now Boaz is an interesting character. His name means in him is strength. But he's also the son of Salmon and Rahab, the harlot of Jericho fame. Now what's fascinating is that when we jump to Matthew 1 to see the genealogy of Christ, um, we find, besides the great heroes like Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, there are four women mentioned. It says, Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab, Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth, and David, the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Four scandalous incidents and or characters. The Tamar incident, Rahab, the harlot of Jericho, Ruth, the Moabite, and the infamous Bathsheba. And yet all of them made it to the genealogy of Christ. And they aren't named and shamed. They're in fact named and esteemed. They haven't been covered up and swept under the rug. Instead, they are stark testimonies that the grace of God can pick up each and every one of us in our filth and in our obscurity and hopelessness and redeem us and use even us for his awesome purposes all to the glory of the grace of God. God can use you regardless of your sinful past. 
All right, we're back to Ruth 2, verse 2. Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favour. And she said to her, Go, my daughter. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. So what is gleaning, I hear you ask? Gleaning is an incredible principle that God invented and introduced into the nation of Israel. And it was a means of providing for the poor. It was a means of social welfare. So basically, the, the rich landowners uh, were not allowed to harvest their crops, whether it be olives or grapes or grain. They weren't allowed to harvest their crops to the very corners and to the very edges. Uh, if they missed something, they had to leave it. And they weren't allowed to go back over it again if they left some on the ground. That was a provision for the poor and those who didn't own land. They could come in and work the land themselves and harvest the edges and the corners and what was left. It was an incredible concept that our nation could learn a lot about in terms of social welfare because it provided um, dignity and productivity for the poor in the process. They didn't just receive a handout. What they got was provision for their family as well as dignity and productivity. I learn a lot about uh, gleaning from my kids, actually. They're probably not even aware of this, but as I taught my boys to mow the lawn, um, off they'd go, they'd mow the lawn, and sure enough, afterwards I had to come and do the corners and the edges and the bits they'd missed. Um, maybe you haven't taught your boys to mow the lawn, but maybe you've told your kids to go and tidy their room. And you too understand this principle of gleaning, where you go after they've gone, and you can find plenty of stuff to pick up, um, stuff that they've forgotten about, stuff that, um, yeah, and you can make it disappear. So um, it's interesting what we can learn from our kids. Gleaning was a means of God providing for the poor, and that's another central theme in Ruth. Our God is the God who provides. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. In fact, the whole earth belongs to him. So God's omnipotence, he can do anything, combines with his mercy, he loves us, in divine providence as part of his care for his children. His omnipotence combines with his mercy in divine providence as part of his care for us. Okay, so Ruth is out there gleaning in the fields and she happened to come, it says in verse 3, to the part of the field belonging to Boaz. But Ruth didn't just happen to come to Boaz's field by random chance. She happened to come to Boaz's field because her steps were ordered by the Lord. Her steps were divinely ordered by God. God inclined her heart and gave her desires to align with her, his will such that she found herself precisely where God wanted her to be at that moment in time. And God cares about your steps. And not just the great big steps when you've got big decisions to make. He cares about every step. And he promises that if you trust in the Lord with all of your heart and lean not on your own understanding, if you acknowledge him in all of your ways, he will make your path straight. He'll give you desires in your heart such that you'll want what he wants and with joy you'll find yourself right in the middle of God's will for your life. So trust him, keep your eyes on him and watch him lead you. The passage goes on, Boaz comes from Bethlehem. Now, from what I can understand, the book of Ruth 
was written after the time of David, so contemporary readers back in the day would have got a little excited about the term Bethlehem, knowing that King David came from Bethlehem, and so the whole hope thing starts rising. And we, on the other side of the cross, also are pretty excited about Bethlehem, especially so close to Christmas. We know that Jesus, the Messiah, came from Bethlehem. And so what we can see is that God is very much at work restoring hope, and this love story of Boaz and Ruth is right at the heart of God starting to shape his gospel history for us. The character of Boaz is something else that we can observe. Right in the middle of these dark times, we see a man of God, and he's not being dragged down by his surroundings. He's standing firm and he's being a light in the darkness to point people to the goodness of God. His language is seasoned with grace and blessing. The Lord be with you, he says to his reapers. Now, most of us, the only time we hear um, the Lord be with you is if we're perhaps worshipping in a traditional church where the minister will say, the Lord be with you, and then the congregation will reply, and also with you. You've obviously not been in a traditional church in recent times. But um, this guy had been so changed by the grace of God that God's grace had infiltrated his everyday life and his speech just poured forth the grace of God in all that he did. And it makes me think, is my language saturated with the grace of God? When people hear me speak, you know, do I just come and say, G'day, how you doing? Or do I bring something of the grace and presence of God wherever I am? What do people see when they look at my life, when they consider my attitudes and the way I respond to hardships and trials? Can people see that I'm a man of God? Or would they have to dig pretty deeply before they can find something of substance? I'm so thankful for the grace of Christ, which forgives me and all of my shortcomings, and I'm sure you are too. So thankful for the Holy Spirit who's at work within me, for God's relentless grace who's absolutely committed to my transformation into the image of Christ so much more than I am. Thank God for his grace. who is, uh, He hasn't given up on you. He hasn't given up on you. He's committed to you. Anyway, time is short and the heat is hot. So in brief, God causes Boaz and Ruth to meet and Ruth finds favour with Boaz. God set him up to be a provider, a protector, and even a redeemer for Ruth and Naomi. So God could have done it directly. He could have intervened supernaturally and been a provider and a redeemer and um, all of that for, for Ruth and Naomi. But instead, he chose to use Boaz. And that's pretty much the way God still most often works amongst us. He, he could work directly with us, but instead he usually chooses to use the people around us especially in the body of Christ, to bring us comfort and guidance and wisdom and encouragement and understanding and strength. We need one another. Jesus didn't die to save us. No, he didn't, he didn't die um, for us to be independent Christians. He died and rose to set us free from our independence to be completely dependent upon him and to be interdependent on one another. All right? he, he died and rose to set us free from our dependence, 
to make us completely dependent on him and to be interdependent upon one another. That's the body of Christ. That's the way he set it up. So Boaz watches over Ruth, allowing her to glean in his fields, offering protection, providing for her, showing mercy, such that we find this beautiful exchange from verse 10. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favour in your eyes, such that you should take notice of me, since I am a foreigner? But Boaz answered her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me, and how you left your father and mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. And that posture of Ruth is precisely that which should be the posture of you and me. None of us is owed grace. None of us has earned mercy. None of us deserves favour. Ruth shows humility, which is the precise opposite of a sense of entitlement. If you think you've earned your right standing before God because you've lived a a good life, you're not only wrong, but you're a long way from the gospel. Our approach in life should not be to work for God so as to prove our worth to Him, but rather to live a life of resting and trusting in the completed work of Jesus for us. The gospel is this, I come with nothing but infinite debt, and because of Jesus, God gives me infinite riches. I bring nothing but infinite debt, but because of Jesus, God gives me infinite riches. Finally, from verse 12, which is as far as we're going to get today, Boaz says something beautiful to Ruth. He says, The Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Then she said, I have found favour in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. So Boaz saw beyond the natural stuff of earth. He didn't see himself as merely a social worker alleviating felt needs. Instead, he saw that Ruth had come under the care and protection and providence and refuge chiefly of God himself. It's a beautiful picture, one that God often uses in his word to describe the way in which he cares for you. The God of Israel under whose wings you've come to take refuge. We recall the words of Christ as he lamented over Jerusalem, crying out, uh, lamenting how often he would have gathered their children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings. And I'm taking a bit of a risk here, but what children we've got today, you may be familiar with the classic Colin Buchanan song. He's right up there with William Cooper in terms of him writing. But um, it goes something like this. God loves his children like a chucky loves her chickies. The mother hen will gather them underneath her wings. Who remembers that? Any kids know that one? My kids know that one. There's a few at the back, sensational. And for those kids who do know it, I want to encourage you to sing the next bit 
really loudly in the car on the way home, all right? And if your parents complain, you just tell them Uncle Phil said it was okay. It's a great song. But it's true. That's a beautiful picture of the way that God cares for us. Like a mother hen gathering her chicks under the care and protection of his wings. In Psalm 57.1, we find this passionate cry of David, Ruth's great-grandson. Now, often it's, it's difficult sometimes to put it all together, but David was Ruth's great-grandson. Some of you have great-grandchildren, and so you can appreciate the bond that Ruth and David may have had. And David wrote, Be merciful to me, O God, be merciful to me, for in you my soul takes refuge. In the shadow of your wings I will take refuge till the storms of destruction pass by. And some of you know what it is to be in a storm of destruction, perhaps even right now. You're feeling you're in a storm of destruction. And just as surely as you can feel that weight, you need to feel the grace of your Saviour. You need to remember that you exist in the shadow of his rings, wings so you can take refuge. Maybe you need to grab hold of Psalm 57 verse 1 and just meditate on it and allow God's grace to do a deep work in your heart so that the storms of destruction can pass by and you're kept safe under the shadow of his wings. That's where we need to rest. So God is the same yesterday, today and forever. And this same God comes to you today. Firstly, he comes and reveals himself as the God who is absolutely sovereign, which means he can guarantee goodness and meaning and purpose in every pain, every trial and every dark valley that he leads you through. Secondly, he comes to you as the God who provides. He knows all your needs and he's at work, even though you can't see him, to prove himself to you as the God who cares. Thirdly, he comes to you as the God who is your refuge, who gathers you under his wings to provide the all-powerful yet tender care that you need in every moment of life. Because of all that, he's the God who can be absolutely and eternally trusted by you and me as we step into 2021 filled with a peace which passes all understanding, a joy in our glorious Saviour and a hope which is unfailing. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the history of your plan of salvation. Father, we thank you that you didn't leave Israel alone without hope. And Father, we thank you that you never leave us without hope. And Father, my prayer, especially right now, is for those who sense those storms of destruction. Father, I pray that your grace would run deep, that you would reach out to every heart and minister deeply. Father, bring home your word by the work of your Holy Spirit today. We pray in Jesus' name. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. God bless you.